You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.35, Long Live the Argama, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and while I've had a good run here on the podcast, I think it's high time that I embraced my role as an adult by letting some untested teenagers take over MSB. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta and enjoying some strongly positive feelings from this week's episode, for a change. I'm sure they will be almost instantly dashed. Mobile Soup Breakdown is made possible by the support of 454 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Jeff S., Ethan D., Marcus D., and Paul K. Your support pays for recording equipment, research materials, web hosting, and more so that we can keep making MSB. And special thanks this week to Angel Null for getting us a book and some tea from our wish list. We have an exciting announcement. We have reached $3,000 a month on Patreon, triggering a goal we've been looking forward to, episode transcripts. The idea is to make the podcast more accessible to deaf and hard of hearing people, people with audio processing issues, and those who just prefer reading to listening. We are working on how we're going to handle current episodes versus the back catalog, but we'll keep you all updated on our progress. And the exciting work of transcription has already begun. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta episode 37. In Japanese, it's Neru Argama, but as for how we're going to be saying it in English, well, we'll talk about that in just a moment. This episode originally aired on November 15, 1986. It was written by Endo Akinori and directed by Egami Kiyoshi, with storyboards by Takizawa Toshifumi and Tomino. For our research this week, I'm going to discuss the speculative space launch methods that have appeared in the show so far. Before we launch into the recap and the talkback, we need to discuss the name of the crew's new ship and how it's going to be pronounced <laughs> in, uh, in our recaps and when we talk about it. You know, we've learned a lot making the podcast this past three years. And one of the things that we've learned is that Gundam fans get really passionate about how to pronounce different words from the larger Gundam universe. There is no way that we could pronounce things that would please everyone. It's true. It's true. So many of these words have uh, multiple different pronunciations that are popular in different corners of the fandom. Uh, or with different particular people, we've definitely caught a lot of flack over the years for our different pronunciations. But anytime we've changed something, that has then brought the other factions out of the woodwork to complain about the new pronunciation. So we're going to try to head all of that off by just talking through our thought process for how to pronounce the name of this new ship. My contention is that people will be just as upset with us as before. But we will have explained our thought process behind why we go with the pronunciation we go with, which could be interesting to some of you. Yeah. 
So the new ship, they spell it in English, N-A-H-E-L space Argama. Which if I were pronouncing it with no other information, I would probably say Nahel. Kind of like the Sahel Desert. Yeah. Or Nahel might also work. You can just sort of swallow the H and say Nahel. There's no indication so far that it's a word that comes from any particular language. Going into the episode, it looks like a totally made-up word. The Japanese pronunciation is neru. And it's katakana ne, e, and ru. During the episode, one of the characters does something that I would actually like Gundam to do more often, which is <laughs> she tells us that the name of this new ship means close to the Argama. And in Japanese, they say Argama ni chikai, which close means to. Close to. And that combined with the Japanese pronunciation neiru strongly suggests that it's coming from the English word near. The near Argama. And if you happen to look chikai up in a dictionary, the first entry is near. And neiru is close enough to near that I think that's a plausible explanation for how we got here. So it could be the near Argama. That's possibly the closest to its root origin. The other data point that we need to take into account here is that in another series that will go unnamed but is in the future, there is an English dub. They do say the name of this ship. And in the English dub, they call it the Nail Argama. The nail, nail like a thing you hit with a hammer. Hmm. So those are our data points. There's how it's spelled. There's how it's said in Japanese. There's the word we think it comes from in English. And there's that English dub. Neru sounds much more like nail than like near. So there is that. From a personal perspective, I suppose I feel most comfortable pronouncing it the way characters pronounce it in the episode. So in the same way that for most of the character names and place names, uh, excepting when they are real places, we go with the name as pronounced in the show. You know, it's Mashima, not Mashimre. <laughs> <laughs> so you think we should call it the Neru Argama? Yeah, I think so. How do you feel about it? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it's not a consistent policy, right? I call it the double Zeta, not the Dabaru Zeta. <laughs> Works in translation are always complicated like that. And Gundam, of course, is always especially difficult in this regard. I came into this discussion uh, hoping to argue for the near Argama, since I really do think that's where the name comes from. Oh, me too. And I, I like it. It's just that unfortunately doesn't completely feel supported by the text. <laughs> like, Yeah, unfortunately, it's also maybe the one that would feel the most out there. It would be us taking the greatest liberties. We can say that. And, you know, I have taken a few liberties with some of these names. But I think I can accept, I can learn to live with either Nehru or Nail Argama. And we may change our minds later. <laughs> we may start out with Nehru Argama and decide later to say Nail. What if each one of us does a different pronunciation? What if we say it differently every time? I'm only a little bit joking. Tom was <laughs> mentioning earlier that he feels as if he pronounces Rosamia different every time. I totally do. Rosamia. Rosamia, Rosami, Rosami. Yep. Rosami. 
Unfortunately, I'm thinking about this now and the mouthfeel of saying neru argama instead of neru agama. It just, it feels strange. <laughs> it feels a little off somehow. So I'm feeling torn. <laughs> well, maybe we should throw a rare bone to the dub fans out there and use the dub pronunciation nail argama. But for those of you listening at home, every time we say nail argama, I want you to think that means near argama. <laughs> Deal? Deal. And now, without any further ado, it's time for the long-awaited return of Radio Free Shangri-La. The car was quiet on the way back to the ship. I was in the front seat, mulling over my encounter with Nina Nina's daughter. We'd been partners at the Titans News Network in the good old days of the Grips conflict, but we'd been rivals before, back when we were just a couple of cub reporters on the regional circuit. I was starting to think that maybe this rivalry was our destiny. As for the others, they were reckoning with their own unsettling encounters. Okay, this might seem like a weird question, but did any of you uh, maybe meet the characters you play? Have you been taking drugs? That's impossible. They're totally fictional and we're real. I didn't, of course, but um, did you? Oh, no, I was just uh, joking. The lone survivor punched me in the jaw and called me a varmint. Bethany said my accent was plebeian. I don't know why you're complaining. Strobe and I had a great time. Is Richard okay? He hasn't said anything since we left the party. Oh, he's just moping because he walked into the humidor and saw himself lying on the floor in a pool of blood. It's only natural to be disturbed by the sight of yourself bleeding out in a walk-in humidor. Despite that night's strange experiences, we still had radio dramas to record. And so it came to pass during rehearsals the next morning. Okay, let's take it from Alice's line at the top of the page. This farce has gone on long enough. Time to die, butler. Stop! Bethany! I I mean, Bethany, what are you doing here? Get out of the way. Uh, Get back, Bethany. You don't know how dangerous Alice is. No, Guildenstern, you reckless buffoon. This time it's my turn to protect you. Now, Alice, put the gun down right this instant or else I shall be forced to use this. Oh, no. Is that a refrigerator magnet? That's right. And if Alice doesn't do as I say, then I'm going to rub it all over her hard drive. What part of Alice as a human person did you not understand? And we'll put in a dramatic music cue here, then Nathan can throw to commercial. Oh, and Nathan, if you could read your lines with a little more gusto this time. Hey, we're in the middle of rehearsal. You all need to turn on the news right now. Welcome back to Voice of Earth, the official news channel of the Federation government. The whole Earth sphere is going wild today over a viral video showing three orphan capybara pups rescued from the irradiated ruins of Jaburo playing with a horror brand therapy orb. <laughs> um. Okay, literally any other news station. The colony left its stable position and began to deorbit several days ago. Apologize to our viewers for the graphic nature of this live footage. I'm joined now by the mayor of Dublin. 
Tell me, sir, you were already outside the city on a family vacation when news of the colony drop was first announced. How do you respond to allegations that you had advanced warning of the disaster? There are lines of cars waiting to cross the river, but many of the bridges have been destroyed. Early warning systems installed after the one-year war failed to activate, and an inquiry is expected. That was our last transmission from the local affiliate. This whole disaster is Ayub's fault. If not for the ill-judged resistance, Haman would never- The smoke you see there on the horizon is from the hospital ship Mercy, which had been undergoing a refit at the docks in Belfast. All civilian flights in the region are grounded until further notice. Colony is dropping on Dublin. What does that mean for your weekend? Oh, they want you to think this is some kind of extremist terrorist attack, but... This is really just a continuation of the terrestrial depopulation policy that the Federation elites have been pursuing for generations. Oman isn't their enemy. She's their co-conspirator. We, the people, are the enemy. The Senator is proposing a 10% increase in funding for the Federal Forces in order to train and equip a specialized task force to root out anti-Earth sentiment in the colonies. I'm joined today by mysterious Spacenoid rights activist and author of the best-selling memoir, Spacenoid Elegy, Fives Borjarnin. Mr. Fives, you advocate sending all politicians to space. How would that address the current crisis? Nothing like this ever happened when the Titans were around. Are predicting that the damage will be here than in the colony dropped 10 years ago due to the relatively stable plate tectonics in the Irish Sea region. However, significant flooding is expected as far away as... Our previously scheduled interview with Karabo leader Hayato Kobayashi has been cancelled. The solution, as always, is innovation and private industry. My company, Anaheim Tectonics, is already working on designs for colony-proof subterranean cities. The Colony Corporation issued this statement. Our colonies were built as places where humanity could live and work beyond the earthly cradle. Their use as weapons of mass destruction constitutes a serious breach of our end-user license agreement, and we will be pursuing legal action against Neozeon. I don't believe it. How could anyone do something like this? Switch over to NZC, would you? I want to hear what Nina Nina's daughter has to say about it. But Operation Irish Rose is merely one small part of Supreme Commander Haman Karn's Peace and Security Initiative. For too long, the Earthnoid elites have ignored our just demands for Spacenoid autonomy. For generations, their brutal enforcers have violated our rights with impunity. They say the Titans are gone, the Titans were just a name. What do we care if the Federation says that the boot on our necks is now a slipper? They must learn that we are not rats in celestial cages to be gassed at the first sign of disobedience. We are mighty, we possess the will to power, and now the sniveling wretches feeding off the shambling corpse of the Earth Federation will bow to us. And to any Earthnoids listening to this broadcast, I have one message. From this day forth, every time you look up to the sky, I want you to remember that your leaders cannot and will not protect you. Hi kids, Carmat Frug here for Puppet Action News. You know, it's okay to feel scared right now, but you're safe and you're going to be fine. Yay! Unless you live near Dublin. And now the recap for Nail Argama. After the success of the colony drop, 
Haman returns to space. From Karaba's Norway base, the Argama's former crew do the same, leaving the stricken ship behind. In the shuttle, the younger crew members find themselves in the cargo hold, strapped to bolted-down cases. Judo seems pensive, caught up in thinking of the people they couldn't save, and wondering if it's even possible to end the conflict. But El takes his hand. We have to keep fighting, she tells him. And her spirit and persistence leave Judo feeling fired up. On Earth, a few people make a point of watching the shuttle launch. Glasgow is damaged, some buildings collapsed and many streets flooded, but Fa and Camille stand on a patch of intact pavement watching their friends take off. And in Dakar, a blonde woman, who appears to be Sela Mass, stands next to none other than Lena, alive. And the two watch the pinpoints of light arc overhead and into space. As the shuttles enter the side four shoal zone, the Lavian Rose comes into view, along with our crew's new ship. It looks just like the Argama, and is called the Nail Argama. They are greeted by Deputy Captain Emery, Millie, and, to their disappointment, Macha, who wants to speak to Bright right away. Millie takes the rest on a tour of the new ship, where they marvel at the state-of-the-art hardware, learn the new controls, and even daydream about the role the ship could play in their lives once the war is over. A couple of adult men in normal suits show up with Shintan Kum in tow, demanding to know what the kids are doing and who gave them permission to be here. When the kids shoot back that they don't need permission to explore their own ship, the men chuckle to each other that no one has told the kids yet, then refuse to explain. Angry, Judo launches himself at them but is held back by Rue and Millie, who suggest a walk to the mobile suit deck. On the way there, the group hear Bright's raised voice coming from beyond a door. They crowd outside to eavesdrop and hear Madja tell Bright that Ayug no longer needs to depend on children who won't follow orders. They are in the process of organizing a new crew and training pilots. Bright is outraged. The kids have saved them all countless times. How can Ayug simply discard the whole crew? Emery has been watching silently and hears a sound at the door. Upon opening it, the whole group tumble into the doorway in a heap, arguing with Madja before they even hit the floor. He blusters and talks down to them about how children don't understand anything, but they won't be cowed. After all, they've done well in combat, and what has Ayug accomplished? They didn't even stand up to the Federation over the decision to cede Side 3 to Neo Zeon. The argument is interrupted when the ship's alarms sound. Enemies are approaching. It's Mashima and his ship, still in the area after the colony drop. He gives his top pilot, Ilya Pazom, the rose he wears like a talisman, and sends her out with the rest of the Zasa units. The Gundam team aren't authorized to sortie, but when has that ever stopped them? When the same men from earlier pick a fight, Bright breaks them up. What's the point of fighting your allies, he reproaches. And the absurdity of it is hammered home when the ship takes a direct hit, sending them all staggering and giving the Gundam team a chance to run for the bridge. When the adults catch up, Bicha is already in the captain's chair, and Bright motions for him to stay put before ordering the other men to turrets. They argue and grumble, but eventually go. The first wave of enemy mobile suits fire a wave of missiles and then withdraw, so Bright leaves Bicha in command and goes to inspect the damage. Down one of the passageways, he comes across Shintang Kum blocking the way jostling with the soldiers from earlier who have abandoned their posts. 
They resent being sent to gunner turrets when they're bridge crew. But for Bright, the choice is simple. Right now, experience is more important. While they argue, Ilya flies in close. Judo dashes for the mobile suit deck, but before he can launch the double Zeta, Ilya lands a hit on the nail Argama, blasting a hole in the hull near where Bright is. He manages to grab a handhold, but the other crew who were with him, including Shinta, Kroom, and Haro, are sucked out into space. Determined to save them, Bright takes the ship's launch out. In the meantime, Judo has launched and is fighting off Ilya. She is stunningly fast, and her new mobile suit is powerful. But every time their mobile suits touch, the two pilots are engulfed in ripples of green energy that feel like a current of electricity. They clash and separate, and Judo knows he needs a plan, a strategy. He hides, but before long, Ilya spots the double Zeta's head and feet, poking out from behind an asteroid. She loops around behind, the double Zeta shooting at her as she charges, but finds the mobile suit's midsection missing. Judo sneaks up on her in his core fighter, landing multiple hits before she snatches up the little plane. Ejecting, Judo approaches the enemy mobile suit. Trying to swat him away, Ilya instead hits the door of the cockpit and it slides open. The two of them struggle for Ilya's sidearm, and when their hands touch, the strange, green ripples of energy are stronger than ever, obliterating Mashima's rose and propelling Judo out of the cockpit. Ilya flees. Bright succeeds in collecting all of the crew who'd been cast adrift and takes them to the La Vie Rose, while the young crew of the Nail Argama set a course for side three. Well, it took them like 30 episodes, but the teens have finally pulled off their long con. Back on Shangri-La, they broke onto the Argama, hoping to steal maybe a mobile suit, and now they've managed to make off with a whole ship. Top of the line, state of the art. And I'm, you know, kidding a little bit about that, but this does feel, to me at least, a lot like a throwback to those early episodes of Double Zeta. A lot of the feeling is back. It's a little bit more goofy. It's a little bit more fun than the recent episodes. Well, it's a lot more fun than the recent episodes have been. Mashima is back. He feels like a throwback, even if this is kind of a new Mashima. Uh, we get the teens from Shangri-La as a single block, kind of working against the adults. They're talking about getting into the salvage business again. And especially Judo's clever ruse during the combat that leads to him breaking into Ilya Pazong's cockpit in the middle of the battle. I mean, that's straight out of those early Shangri-La episodes when he was constantly breaking into people's cockpits. I agree that it's a much more fun episode than we've had in a while. A more hopeful and enjoyable episode. But something about that early madcap low-stakes fun has been lost. That's true. I mean, you couldn't go back to that because we now we know what the stakes are. The stakes are that people can die. Although, it turns out not all the people that we thought were dead <laughs> actually are. You're going to bring that up already? Okay. <laughs> we get a silent reveal that Lena is in fact still alive. She's in a wheelchair, uh, appears to be accompanied by Sela, whose outfit is killer, by the way. Well, I mean, it's double Zeta. All the outfits are good. Uh, but yeah, we get to see the two of them standing on a beach near Dakar, watching the shuttle launch, 
no other mention is made of it. From a story perspective, my big question is why put this here? I was just going to ask you that. I was just going to say, so Nina, what's the point of this? And I, I tried to sort of brainstorm from the perspective of somebody constructing a show what reasons a person might have for putting this here, and none of them quite feel right or justified to me. Big reveals or cliffhangers like that are often used to get people to come back for the next episode. But just the fact that all of these young people have like constituted this very non-hierarchical crew and taken off in the nail argama, that's cliffhanger enough for me. Like that already has me very interested in seeing what happens next. Knowing that Lena is alive does not really contribute to that in any way. Yeah, I mean, like you, I'm really struggling to figure out what possible purpose this Lena cameo could have. With Haman returning to space and Lena on Earth, Lena is in substantially less danger than she would be otherwise. Judo had even said at an earlier point in the series that he wanted Elle to take Lena someplace safe. Well, now she is someplace safe under a responsible adult's guardianship. But if the point was to shuffle Lena off the stage, to put her somewhere safe so that everybody can go off and have the exciting climactic battles of the series without her at risk, her being dead had already accomplished that. Right. She was already out of the story. This is bringing her back in, but for no discernible point, and in a way that also immediately shuffles her off the stage. Do we just have to have a little sister now that Pudu is dead? We have to bring Lena back? That's another thing. We are in the aftermath of Pudu's death. We're in the like shadow following the event. So bringing Lena back like this, just it takes something away from Pudu without adding anything to Lena or to the show or to Judo who doesn't know she's alive. I mean, like I said, I cannot think of any discernible reason for this to be here. It was absolutely shocking. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I looked at Tom and went, what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you didn't know she was alive. You were shocked. And I mentioned a second ago that Judo doesn't know she's alive. Why doesn't Judo know she's alive? The episodes leading up to Lena's death are all about these kids developing their improved like psychic communications with each other. And even if Judo's nascent new type abilities and his unique link to Lena, which were established in those episodes, even if those aren't strong enough for him to be able to sense her presence, Puru absolutely could have. I do wonder if part of the issue isn't that Lena's abilities are diminished because of her injuries and her convalescence. Hmm. Because Lena was also highly receptive, could sort of project herself outward strongly before and perhaps in the aftermath of the bombing and the fire and her obvious injuries that's been lessened. I don't really know. I don't. <laughs> I mean, I think that explanation you've just given qualifies as the only explanation that would make it make <laughs> sense. And therefore, it must be the case. In those episodes right after Lena died, we even had dialogue of the characters saying Judo is feeling this so intensely because as a new type, he could feel Lena alive the whole time that they were looking for her, and now he can't feel that anymore. We also saw that while Pudutu was unconscious, nobody could sense her, and the moment she woke up, they could feel her. 
And so if Alina has been in a coma or something, that might sort of explain her absence. It's funny because when you first asked, why doesn't Judo know? I thought you meant, why has nobody told him? (laughs) I assume Lena thinks that he's safer not knowing, that it's better for him to focus on what he's doing right now and not be sort of distracted by her existence. Mm -hmm. And that she plans on telling him after the war is over. And Sayla, for whatever reason, just doesn't want to be in communication with any of these people. We've got no information that would lead us to understand why that's Sayla's position, but it's pretty clear what she's doing. Like, all the other old white base crew are in contact with each other, and Sayla is just out there in Africa doing her own thing. And that's us having spent several minutes, probably a lot more time than is justified, talking about this very brief (laughs) scene (laughs) from the episode. Wait, I have one more thing to say, which is I think this is yet further evidence that a lot of the grand story of Double Zeta is being made up as they go along. The thing I am most curious about moving forward is whether they actually do anything with the fact that Lena is alive. Does this turn out to be a silly tangent that they, like, wanted her on the bench in case they needed her for the story later, but they didn't actually have a reason for bringing her back now? Or is there some intended purpose that she's going to serve in the story later on? And to that, I can only say, hmm. He has quite a bushy beard now, so he can actually stroke his beard while he does that. I've been growing my beard out since November, and it is magnificent. (laughs) While we're talking about some of the bigger picture aspects, I did want to mention A couple of points that came up in this episode with regards to the state of various organizations involved in this conflict. We find out that Karaba is not down for the count. They are going to make use of the old Argama. They still have the Norway base. They're still in it. Obviously, Dublin was very damaging for them. They lost a lot of people and material, but they're still in it. We get a comment from Macha that Ayug did some reorganization while the Argama was on Earth, uh, which sounds a little bit as though they waited for the Argama to be out of the way or waited for the Argama to be distracting the enemy so that they could take care of some things. However, in both the case of Ayug and in the case of Mashima's crew, both sides are struggling on the personnel front. They're having to gather a crew for the Nail Argama, They're having to train pilots. Mashima has that whole dressing down at the end of the episode where, you know, all of his pilots shot all their missiles and then came back and he's like, what, none of you have beam sabers? Like, what what was that? That was terrible and you're all terrible. I mean, noteworthy that those pilots Mashima is dressing down, I mean, we mostly see them from behind, but they do look to be adults. Uh, Gundam ages are wonky, so I can't accurately predict it, but I'd say they're in their 30s or 40s. Which means they're actually 22. (laughs) Uh, But comparable in age to the two horrible guys who get assigned to the Nail Argama's crew. Presumably there are actually a lot more like that, but those are the two that we focus on because you can only have so many faces. They're just representational of the whole new crew that was supposed to be on the Nail Argama. I have a slightly different interpretation of this than you do. I don't think this is so much about the difficulties of finding good people. Both crews, the Nail Argama and whatever Mashima's new ship is, are struggling with a conflict of vibes. (laughs) 
there are definitely commanders who would expect their long-range artillery mobile suits to fire off their missiles and then retreat. Mashima is not that kind of commander. He has different expectations. His vibe is different. And these new pilots working under him don't get it. They don't vibe with him. Over on the Nail Argama, same problem. These new adult crew members, and Mecha especially, do not vibe with the existing crew of the Argama. The kids bring up the very valid point that what good is Ayug if they cannot stand up to the Federation? Like, isn't that the entire point of Ayug? Instead, they've become this, like, auxiliary of the Federation, fighting the Federation's battles for them in space while the Federation parcels off colonies and gives them to other powers. And very much like the Federation, Ayug would clearly rather lose than, like, empower these teens. This whole conflict about whether the teens get to be on the Nail Argama, whether they get to sortie once they're attacked, comes down to, like, the teens have combat experience and can win, but Mecha and the Ayug general staff would rather send out half-trained rookie adults to get slaughtered. And that's what the Federation is doing, too. They would rather give away all of side three. They would rather lose the war, basically, than accept any change to their own domestic status quo. And it's really funny that in this episode, Judo like basically sees no difference at all between the top brass in Ayug and the top brass in the Federation. Macha has the grace to look sheepish when it's like, uh, well, we couldn't really stop the Fed from giving away that side. But then what is the point of you? Did you even try? This is only just now occurring to me, but part of the significance of Mecha's character may well be to demonstrate how revolutionary organizations get co-opted. Like, if they get too hierarchical, if they get too entrenched, if there's too much of, like, a management class within them, they wind up just being, like, co-opted or buying into the status quo. Mecha would rather be the space arm of the Federation than fight for Spacenoid rights. Well, and he, I'm pretty sure, is doing double duty as an AUG commander, but also as an Anaheim Electronics, like, weapons salesman spokesperson. Yeah, I had thought he was some sort of supply officer. But is he the captain of the Lavian Rose? No, actually, um... But Emery is only deputy captain. I, I know. So this is, <laughs> we have to go back into, like, setting materials for this. Oh, no. There is unique art for the captain of the Lavian Rose, but it was never used. <laughs> this makes Emery's line at the end of the episode that much funnier. Oh, it's hysterical. It's, it's great. It's so funny now. So this is when Mecha is like, how can a ship move without its captain? Which call back to Camille's voice a few episodes ago when the Argama launched while Bright and Judo were still on their way back from Beach Mansion, and uh, Judo says the same thing to Bright. And then Emery responds to this like, oh, I have no idea, even though she's been running the Livy and Rose this whole time, but not as its captain. Yeah, Macha is sort of the vehicle for, and some other characters get involved in this too, but I feel like it concentrates on him. This whole conflict between these two generations and between two very different ways of doing things, you know, that example goes to show he's highly hierarchical. How can anybody know what to do without a superior telling them what to do? <laughs> Whereas Bright has largely figured out <laughs> at this point that there is no telling these kids what to do. 
you kind of just have to let them do their thing and attempt to guide them at the right moments and when they seem sort of susceptible to guidance. <laughs> well, if you believe in the like rightness of your cause, then you can convince them of the rightness of your cause. You don't need to give them orders. And that's shown by the end of the episode where they have this new ship, but instead of running off to start a cargo hauling company the way they joke about at the beginning of the episode, they decide to go right into the the belly of the beast, right into the lion's maw. They don't talk about escaping the war, they talk about ending it. And there's two characters who really get to contribute to that conversation in a nice way, and it's El and Bicha. When they're leaving Earth, Judo is a bit down in the dumps. They didn't save more people. It's not over. You can't just punch in the face of every higher up in every bad organization. Okay, but have we tried that? Judo hasn't gotten to punch all of them yet. If he did, maybe it would work. And certainly along the way, a lot of bad people would get punched in the face. I have started to realize over the past couple of episodes that L often represents our sort of hopeful, persistent voice. When Judo is looking at crowds of evacuees in Dublin, he thinks there's no way we can help all those people. L says, well, we're going to try. We're going to do our best. In the cargo area of this shuttle, Judo says, we didn't do enough. What are we going to do? Can we even end this? And Elle says, we're going to try. We're going to keep fighting. And that really, like, fires Judo up. It cheers him up in that moment. And the other one, oddly, is Bicha. <laughs> who, this episode doing a lot to redeem that kid. Yeah, they... I mean, it helps that he keeps getting dunked on. <laughs> that helps a lot. What's, uh, what's a little attempted murder between friends as long as afterwards you can still roast him? He's thinking about the future, not in terms of running away from the conflict, not in terms of, oh, well, this has nothing to do with us, which was very much the attitude early in the series. But instead, ah, when the war is over and Mondo goes back to their scrapper days and Beach is like, oh, why are you thinking so small? We could run like a cargo hauling company. He is thinking about all of these possibilities a bit naively to my mind, because this idea that they're going to be able to run off with a state-of-the-art battleship is hilarious. But he's thinking about a future after the war. He's not thinking about running away. I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, which is Bright's role in all of this and how that's interwoven with Beecha's. Because pretty early on in the episode, when Bright goes onto the bridge and he finds Beecha there sitting in the captain's chair doing his best Bright impression, Bright's response to this becomes, well, you'd better get some practice or you're never going to learn how to do this. This is the point at which I started to wonder when in the episode Bright has decided to give up the ship. Now, him letting Bicha do this, sort of a couple of different points contributing. Torres completely choked the last time he had to take command. It did not work. So even though Torres might be one of the most senior people aboard the crew... Definitely the oldest of the bridge crew at this point. He may not particularly be suited to that captain's role or that deputy captain role. And Bicha wants it, which is like the most important part. Nobody else wants to sit in that chair. And I think in this episode, Bright, who has been kind of up and down all through Double Zeta and Zeta, but Bright really covers himself in glory here because he does, like, he does basically the best possible thing that he can do in this situation, which is he runs interference for the kids. 
He starts out in his argument with Matcha saying, how can you do this to us? It's the whole crew. It's not them. It's not how can you do this to the kids. It's how can you do this to us? Matcha tells him he doesn't have a choice about staying on as captain, that those are his orders. They're going to scrap his crew, install him as captain, give him a new crew, and he has no options. This is the part that made me wonder if Bright doesn't envy the kids and their, uh, their lack of a sense of obligation to those same orders. Because then, you know, he's got one more trick up his sleeve. Haha, you can't make me be captain if the ship is gone. <laughs> and I do think he would have stayed if not for the events of the battle with the people being thrown out. Especially Shinta and Kum. I don't think Bright particularly cared about those other guys. Did you notice that when Bright goes out to rescue them, one, Haro, despite having hands, bites the rescue cable, which is very <laughs> funny and cute. Uh-huh. Uh, and the kids just immediately propel themselves over and grab the cable. The adults are all struggling. Yeah, they have to be grabbed with the, the shuttle's, like, claw arms. The adults were probably recruited from Granada or Amman or one of the other lunar cities where Anaheim and Ayug have a big presence. So they are just not as familiar with being out in space. The lunar cities also have gravity. And so even the experience of being in low gravity or no gravity parts of a ship is probably uh, pretty new for some of these recruits. I thought it was a sign of the crew's fondness for Bright that when Bicha impersonates Bright in the captain's chair, nobody finds it funny or laughs, <laughs> at him. Well, they laugh at him. They call him an idiot. And he looks appropriately sheepish afterwards. And then once he actually um, becomes their acting captain at the end of the episode, everyone is still doing their own thing. Judo decides to launch and then Bicha gives the order after the fact. L does the same thing. And he's like, don't launch without permission. But he doesn't even try to stop her and couldn't if he wanted to. Which emphasizes the difference between these two commanding styles. Mecha views this as a top-down relationship. The captain decides what's going to happen and gives the orders and everybody has to obey. But in practical effect, over on the nail Argama, with the teens running the show, it's all bottom-up. The crew together decides what they're going to do, and then Bicha becomes the conduit for that collective desire. And from his position as captain or acting captain, whatever we want to call him, there are certain tasks that are Beach's responsibility. He should be the one ordering diagnostics. He's directing the gunners. He is supposed to be sort of a, a locus for information. However, as has frankly always been the case with this group, individuals are going to act on their own initiative to the best of their ability. And that's independent of him. He's more of a facilitator or a coordinator than a captain. Yes, I like that. I did crack up before Bright leaves the ship and they're getting ready to join the battle. And Bicha holds out a hand. Let me say this part. Neiru Agama, hashin! I mean, the best part, right? Matcha gives the impression of thinking that you give whatever orders you want and everybody has to obey and that's just the way it is. But that's clearly not how it plays out in practice. You know, the kids aren't the only ones who disobey orders. These adults are like, wait, but we trained as bridge crew. Why are you making us go be gunners? We are going to disobey that order. And of course, that makes sense. They've got no relationship with Bright. They've got no trust in him. They've got no respect for his authority. 
though it does make it especially ironic and funny every time they complain about the teens not listening to orders. This is an episode that goes out of its way to highlight how unreasonable, how hypocritical, how rigid adults are. You know, Mancha seems irritated anytime the kids open their mouths. And a lot of the complaints that get aimed at the kids seem to be about, oh, the kids don't show enough respect. The kids don't, you know, it's sort of tone policing. So they can take issue with the way in which the kids communicate rather than having to address the kids' legitimate grievances. <laughs> and this desire, and I, I think this is something adults do a lot, but this impulse to invalidate young people's ideas because they're young. It's like, oh, well, you can't possibly have enough experience to understand this or to have good ideas about it. And that's simply not the case. Obviously, years lived is not the only marker of experience, and there are many other factors that contribute to someone's ability to have good ideas. But there is a, a broad tendency among adults in society to discount what young people have to say simply because they're young. In some ways, this new argama, the nail argama, is a return to the vibes of the white base. In that the white base was much less hierarchical, I would argue the nail argama is even less so than the white base was. But you have a similar sort of like flattening of the age range of the people involved, both because the oldest people and the youngest people are gone. And this sense of camaraderie and community among the remaining crew members. It's funny you mention that because I was just thinking about which crew members from the Argama got left behind and which ones stayed on. Because Bright is not the only one who stayed at the Livienne Rose. Bridge operators Caesar and Samarn both also stayed behind on the Levienne Rose. The only two who went with the nail Argama were Torres and then the rarely seen redheaded Keithron, who presumably we'll see more of in the future since he's one of only two there. I bring this up because if you think back to the white base, there was the core cast, and then there were kind of these two dudes on the bridge serving as operators who formed a kind of uh, second tier cast. On the white base, that was Oscar and Marker. Over on the nail Argama, that seems to be Torres and Keithron in a similar role. This episode also brings up one of the key conundra of Gundam so far, the three Gundam series we've watched, which is obviously we don't want children to have to fight in war. That's awful. However, can they actually be protected from war? And the position of Gundam is no. It's going to affect them whether they are soldiers or civilians. And in this case, where we have these children who've been fighting for months, removing their ability to do that just strips them of agency and winds up feeling like they have been used and discarded. You know, Mancha says, adults should handle it. And it's like, yes, we all sort of feel like that's true, but adults are also bad and frequently <laughs> very wrong. As you very correctly said, that's one of the great difficulties with Gundam. I mean, it's common for people who are analyzing Gundam to talk about the role of child soldiers, to talk about the problems of that and the sort of moral culpability of all of the adults who put the children in these situations. And that's all true. But at the same time, 
Gundam absolutely does not have a consistent anti-child soldier message. And the kids' weapons, their mobile suits, are their power to create change in the world. And the problems with the Universal Century, the problems with the colonies, with the Federation, are so much bigger and deeper than just this war. The kids ending the war won't end those problems, but they need this power to be able to do anything. And we have occasionally had glimpses that Bright sort of understands that he's gotten old and, and sold out, if we want to call it that, that he is part of the problem now rather than part of the solution. And that's part of why him ceding his power in the form of this ship to the younger generation is such a powerful thing. It is unlikely that Bright, in command of the Nail Argama, is going to reshape society, but the kids might. We have a new Mashima, old Mashima, but new. He's got a whole new attitude going on. There's still a little bit of that old chivalrous knight, but he's also dark and edgy. He's dressed like a glam rocker. Gosh, those deep Vs for both him and Ilya. I assume you mean on their shirts. Yes. Well, they have the they have the pointy shoulders like Haman, but then these deep V cut necklines. He's wearing dog tags. Ilya's wearing a cross. I wasn't sure if it was dog tags or like a, a saint's medal that he was wearing. Oh, I thought the shape looked like dog tags, but... I mean, it's definitely kind of dog tag shaped, but like I said, I wasn't sure. It was never detailed enough and close up enough. And he's got the um, fingerless and also knuckleless like leather gloves. <laughs> cool outfits is what we're saying. And he's so much more comfortable on the captain's chair of his new ship given commands like a competent officer or something instead of rushing out to do chivalrous battle at the first opportunity. He is pretty broken up when the rose from Haman gets destroyed in the weird yeah. new type ripples, though. That's like the one real goofy moment for Mashima. Speaking of the new type ripples, I got a theory. Oh. So mostly when we see new types, we see this like powerful affinity between people, right? These connections that form, even when, like Haman, they don't want to feel connected to anyone in that way. But I think sometimes you just meet a person and the vibes don't work. There's a clash of personalities. And if the new type powers allow for these deep affinities to form almost instantaneously, then surely it must work the other way when there's a person that you just don't get along with. So you think there's there's something diametrically opposed about Judo and Ilya? Yeah, there's just something about them that just repulses the other person. And when you throw those new type powers into the mix, it becomes literal repulsion. I wondered if the story wasn't hinting at some sort of future connection between them, but I think yours makes more sense. <laughs> you know, there's this uh, sensation that some people get with like certain textures. For some people, it's like peach fuzz is a really common one, or stickiness is another one. And the, this feeling is sometimes called haptodysphoria, but it's just like this intense uh, discomfort, discomfort, this repulsion from certain physical sensations or even thinking about them can cause you to just like cringe all over. And it feels like electricity is running through <laughs> your body, which is how Ilya describes the feeling in this episode. So I think it's a new type version of that. That's true. The skin crawling, hair on the back of your neck standing up kind of yeah. feeling. 
the feeling of judo, it just does that to her. I have one thing to say to Emery, and that is, girl, get over it. Take a cold shower. My God. He's not the only good-looking guy around. And Bright needs to stop getting embarrassed when he talks about his family. I don't necessarily think he should be a jerk to Emery or anything, but, like, he has no intention of encouraging Emery. Therefore... He should stop encouraging her. I don't think he means to. No, I think but he, he is. He can tell that she's upset and he doesn't want to, like, hurt her. Yeah. But he, he needs to be very forthright that, like, he has no intention of cheating on his wife and <laughs> she does not have a chance with him. Yeah, he needs to rip the Band-Aid off. He needs to hurt her a bit now to avoid more later. Hey, here's a question. Is Judo oblivious to the fact that Elle is interested in him, or is he ignoring it because he doesn't feel the same way and he doesn't know what to do about it? Well, I think she might be dating Bicha. I don't know how official that is. I mean, not super official, right? It's definitely like a casual recreation kind of thing for them. There was a comment really early in the series about them being engaged or something. When they were on Moon Moon, there was a a comment about that. But in this one, when Beecha sees Elle holding Judo's hand, he's like, Elle, what are you doing? She's like, I have my personal freedom, which... Sounds very much like they're in some sort of on-again, off-again, teenage-style romantic entanglement. She's also expressed romancy kind of feelings for Judo several times. Mm-hmm. I think most explicitly at Moon Moon. Yep. Um, when someone was like, aren't you dating Bicha? And she's like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> but when they were out in the desert... She sort of like half mumbles, half tells Judo, like, I just want to be with you. And then here holding his hand and encouraging him. Now, those feelings are definitely there. I just think, I don't know, I think Judo has probably been a little bit too busy burying little sisters over the past couple of months to uh, be much interested in romance. Okay, but your position being he knows what's going on. Mm, I'm not willing to commit to Judo knowing anything of what's going on. No one has ever gone broke betting on Judo's obliviousness. And now Tom's research on shuttle launches. Today I want to talk about spacecraft and how we launch them. This is not a totally new topic for MSB. Back in episode 2.24, I briefly covered the Buran Orbiter, a real Soviet space shuttle design that may have inspired the name of Titan's officer Buran Blutark. Then in 2.25, I talked about Hitler's chief rocket scientist, Werner von Braun, and the Saturn V rockets that he built for the United States after the war. Then in episode 2.26, I covered speculative designs for nuclear pulse engines, which could someday offer a new paradigm in spaceship propulsion. And of course, who could forget Nina's research piece on NASA's space shuttle program back in episode 2.21. But we have not yet talked about all of the different approaches to launching spacecraft that have actually shown up in the series thus far. Some of these are pretty familiar, like in episode 31 of First Gundam, when the Federation's combined fleet departed Jaburo for space using disposable rocket boosters. 
or in episodes 13 and 16 of Zeta, when survivors from the Ayuk's disastrous Jaburo raid escaped Earth's gravity well aboard antique shuttles launched the same way they are today, vertically, and complete with disposable booster rockets and massive external fuel tanks. But after that, things start to look a little more speculative. When Camille returns to space in Zeta episode 20, when Quattro returns in Zeta 27, and then again when Camille and Quattro return together in Zeta 37, they do so via shuttles that launch off of larger aircraft already in flight. And in this episode, we see both Haman and the crew of the Argama returning to space in shuttles that launch from long, probably kilometers long, upward sloping tracks that look a bit like the least exciting part of a roller coaster. And each of these is based on real-world proposals for how to improve the launching of spacecraft. The principal problem with launching any spacecraft today is the sheer cost of doing so. Before retiring the space shuttle program, the United States' National Aeronautics and Space Administration was spending something like $450 million per shuttle launch. And mind you, that $450 million number is just the cost of the launch. It doesn't include the overall program cost. If you factor those in, the per-launch price tag looks a lot more like $1.5 billion. Part of that cost came from the huge and totally disposable external fuel tank. This cost about $75 million to manufacture, and it weighed somewhere around 1.7 million pounds when it was fully loaded. And part of that massive price tag came from all the expensive chemical rocket fuel that was needed to propel the shuttle through Earth's dense atmosphere and into space. Incidentally, NASA has some very neat trivia facts about just how much fuel went into the shuttle and just how much energy came out of it. I'll just read you a few of the good ones. When the three main engines on the space shuttle are activated, they produce the same amount of energy as 13 Hoover dams and more than 37 million horsepower. That's not counting the solid rocket boosters, each of which is the height of the Statue of Liberty and three times heavier, carrying more than a million pounds of solid propellant each. Together, the solid rocket boosters contribute another 44 million horsepower, while burning 11,000 pounds of fuel per second. The total weight of the space shuttle at launch was something like 4.5 million pounds, of which 95% was fuel or fuel-related accessories, like the boosters and external tank. At $450 million per launch, and with a payload capacity of 50,000 pounds, it costs about $9,000 per pound of cargo sent into orbit via the space shuttle. And incidentally, since we're talking about an object that is 95% fuel, you have to imagine that most of its fuel burn is just lifting the fuel itself. The orbiter, this is the bit with the crew and the payload, weighed about 242,000 pounds and included a maximum payload of around 50 to 55,000 pounds. That sounds like a lot, but maybe not when compared to the numbers we were just discussing. And to ground it in the fiction, the Double Zeta Gundam is said to weigh about 150,000 pounds. The Zeta weighs less at 137, the Hyakushiki even less at 120,000 pounds. So that means that the shuttle would need a cargo capacity around three times larger than the NASA Space Shuttle in order to carry just one mobile suit into space. 
On the show, we see these shuttles carrying multiple mobile suits, plus other gear and people, so we have to imagine that a Universal Century shuttle must have at least six times the capacity of a NASA shuttle. With all of that in mind, you can imagine how the sheer inefficiency and expense of a conventional, chemically-propelled rocket launch has long inspired scientists and science fiction authors to theorize alternative methods. And since the cost and inefficiency are major deterrents to space exploration and colonization, those scientists and authors who yearn to see humankind expand beyond our earthly cradle have had a particular incentive to propose and explore innovative launch methods. Out of the two such innovative launch methods seen in Gundam thus far, the air-launch-to-orbit shuttles in Zeta are perhaps easier to explain. Airplanes, with their air-breathing engines and aerodynamic forms, are vastly more efficient than chemical rockets when it comes to flying through the atmosphere. Just getting the rocket off the platform and through the densest part of the atmosphere requires a vast amount of fuel. But a plane, on the other hand, can carry the rocket to the same altitude far more efficiently. Aircraft can fly through or around adverse weather conditions that would scrub a rocket launch, and they can get the shuttle up to speed before it launches. The shuttle still needs to have engines and carry fuel, but an air launch requires less thrust in order to reach orbital velocity and altitude. What's more, shuttles launched from the ground have to adopt a compromise design that allows their rockets to function adequately in various different atmospheric densities. But an air-launched shuttle can be designed specifically for the low-pressure upper atmosphere, and it can use high-efficiency rocket fuel that would be too toxic to use close to the ground. Various countries have worked on designs for air-launched orbit systems for decades, and in October 2004, a privately built craft called Spaceship One performed a successful air-launch, flew to 367,000 feet, or 112 kilometers, well above the 100-kilometer Karman line, and therefore into space, before returning safely to Earth. And in 2007, a team at the University of Illinois published a conceptual design for a supersonic air launch system that they estimate could deliver payloads into orbit for only $3,800 per pound, significantly cheaper than the $9,000 per pound price tag on the space shuttle. The principal limitation to this method of launching spacecraft is that as the shuttle gets larger and heavier, it requires a commensurately larger aircraft. Of course, that's not an issue in the Universal Century where they have access to Garuda-class transport planes. These behemoths, 317 meters long, with 525 meter wingspans, and propelled by 20 thermonuclear engines, are about six times the size of the largest planes in the world today. Compared to the Strato launch, a modern plane designed specifically for air-to-orbit launches, the Garuda has a lifting capacity some 7.5 times greater. So with the Garuda in the picture, those shuttle launches in Zeta start to look surprisingly realistic. So now let's switch over to the launch system featured in this week's episode. As I mentioned earlier, both the Titans-turned-Neozeon Kilimanjaro base and the Karaba-Norway base have these really long tracks that they use to launch shuttles. In both cases, the tracks look to be multiple kilometers long and built into the sides of mountains in order to give them a slope that approaches vertical at its terminus. 
The one Haman uses is only ever shown from a distance that is too great to closely examine the launching apparatus, but the one in Norway has the shuttles mounted on a kind of sled that runs on the track. The shuttles have rocket engines and they do use them during launch, but for reasons that I will explain momentarily, this is auxiliary. Much of the shuttle's acceleration is actually being provided by the track. Because these are almost certainly magnetic levitation-assisted launching tracks, though you're more likely to recognize them by another name, mass drivers. They're also called maglev linear payload accelerators, and a bunch of other names too, but mass driver is the easiest to say and probably the best known. We've also talked about maglev systems before, like on episode 3.15 when Nina researched maglev trains, and a mass driver largely relies on the same principles. As a quick refresher, the idea behind a mass driver is to arrange a series of electromagnetic coils into a track, then activate them sequentially to pull a magnetic payload along the track, accelerating as it goes. With sufficiently powerful magnets and a sufficiently long track, you can achieve tremendous speeds. More magnets arranged around the payload make it levitate above or within the track, reducing friction. Because there are practically no moving parts, and the parts that do move never come into contact with each other because of the levitation, a mass driver would be extraordinarily durable and almost infinitely reusable. Incidentally, this series of electromagnets providing linear force are a form of linear motor, which Nina also discussed in greater detail in episode 3.15. I mention it now, however, because it was only when I was doing the research for this piece that it occurred to me that the trains called linear cars, which appear at various times in Gundam, probably got that name because they are maglev trains propelled by linear motors. In 1974, Gerard O'Neill, the very same space exploration theorist who designed the O'Neill cylinders on which Gundam's colonies are based, proposed using mass drivers as part of the construction of those space habitats. He imagined mass drivers built on the moon where they could be used to fling construction materials from lunar excavation facilities to construction sites at the Lagrange points. Rather than using big mass drivers or shuttles to deliver occasional large payloads, he imagined using small mass drivers that would fire small payloads all day, all night. Since the moon has low gravity and no atmosphere, and mass drivers experience minimal wear and use no propellant, his team estimated that a lunar mass driver built with 1980s technology and operating in this manner could deliver some 600,000 tons of payload per year to the L5 Lagrange point at a cost of only $1 per pound. And that's accounting for the cost of constructing the thing in the first place. Mass drivers wound up in O'Neill's book The High Frontier, the same book from which we believe Gundam's creators got their designs for the space colonies. And O'Neill did actually build several small models of his mass driver design. The first of these was built in 1976 for a budget of about $2,000 and using parts from a local scrapyard. It was able to produce about 30 Gs of acceleration. Pretty impressive for a proof of concept. Mass driver performance is principally determined by two factors. How much electricity can you pump into the electromagnets, and how long can you build the track? 
For a given payload, more electricity means greater acceleration per second, while a longer track means more total acceleration, and thus greater velocity on launch. These are relatively small problems when you're talking about launching small payloads from the moon, but they grow vastly more significant when you look at shuttle launches from Earth. In an article from 1980, one of the physicists working on the mass driver project at MIT noted that storing enough energy to power an Earth-based mass driver capable of launching a 1,000 kilogram payload into space would require more capacitors than had ever been manufactured at that point. The problem of track length is compounded because many designs for Earth-based mass drivers, including O'Neill's, propose launching the payload from a vacuum tube in order to remove atmospheric drag. But vacuum tubes are kind of difficult and expensive to build and maintain, the more so the larger and longer they get. And to launch anything like a shuttle from Earth into orbit, they would have to be very large and very long indeed. One proposed design capable of carrying passengers into orbit, the StarTram Generation 2, would require a track length of more than 1,000 kilometers, sloping upward to a final altitude of 22 kilometers above sea level. But alternatively, you can nix the vacuum tube and opt for a compromise system like the ones we see in this episode, where the magnetic levitation from the track reduces friction, and the mass driver's electromagnetic motor provides some acceleration, but the spacecraft being launched also uses its own rocket engines. Launch costs for one of these hybrid models would be higher than a pure mass driver, since they still require some chemical rocket fuel, which also means a heavier payload, but still lower than for a conventional rocket launch. And the initial construction costs for the system would be vastly lower. The heavier payload and the drag with no vacuum tube would also require more electricity driving stronger magnets. But in the universal century, a world with compact fusion reactors running on helium-3 extracted from Jupiter well, electricity should be plentiful, and probably way cheaper than it is today. Most plans for building mass drivers assume that early versions of the structures would be built to launch unmanned payloads, satellites, construction materials, and even, in some designs, nuclear waste. The tracks for these would be relatively short, and the acceleration and g-forces would be too high for human comfort. It would only be later, as the mass driver space launch program matured, that we would see mass drivers designed to launch passenger ships. These would have to be longer in order to reach the same exit velocity with lower moment-to-moment -moment acceleration. That thousand-kilometer-long StarTram design I mentioned earlier would need to be that long in order to bring the g-forces on the passengers down to an acceptable two to three g's. That's somewhere between that one carnival ride that spins you around really fast and being on the space shuttle during launch or re-entry. And interestingly, this same evolution is reflected in Gundam, when Rue mentions that, quote, newer models like the one they're using do inflict less severe g-forces on the occupants. Most of the solid information about real-world mass driver designs comes from the 1990s and the early 2000s, when NASA's shuttle program was winding down and space theorists were trying to imagine the future of the space program. This was, of course, well after Gundam Double Zeta aired, but the idea had been floating around for a long time. 
In fact, even before Gerard O'Neill built one back in the 1970s, mass driver-like devices had been prominent in science fiction, most famously in Robert Heinlein's 1966 novel The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, but also in more obscure sci-fi stories going back at least to the 1930s. As one paper from 1994 aptly put it, this design draws on a heritage of electromagnetic launch concepts in fiction, many, and in the technical literature, few. But this raises an interesting question. If O'Neill and a bunch of other researchers at MIT and Princeton were doing exciting work on mass drivers in the 1970s, even building miniature working versions of them, then what happened? Why did they stop? Well, take this next anecdote with a grain of salt, because it is coming secondhand from an anonymous member of one of those teams, but it seems that their research was going so well that the U.S. military became interested. O'Neill was what you might call a space utopian. He seems to have earnestly believed that colonizing space would be the solution to pretty much all of our terrestrial problems. He thought that his space habitats would be, quote, unpromising as sites for weapons or military bases. About as un-Gundam a mindset as a person can have. It seems likely that many of the scientists in his orbit felt similarly. So when the military showed interest in their work, well, they got spooked. Next time on episode 3.36, Maiden Voyage, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta episode 38 and the Black Tri-Stars, I mean, the Hambrabi team, I mean, the Gaza Storm team, I mean... A captain should be seen and not heard. Clearly Millie should be in charge. Family squabbles. How to ruin a character in one episode growing pains. And something is definitely wrong with judo. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. Radio Free Shangri-La this week featured cameos from our listeners, including, in no particular order, Storm, Silvaris, Justin Pierrot, Connor Sheridan, Renato Ramonda, Joni, Tact, Calder, Amaro Shea, Fruitso, Gary, Crimson, Very, Jace, Duffer, Connor M, Scott W, and Gordon. I received so many great submissions this week that unfortunately I was not able to include everyone. But you can be sure that there will be more opportunities to make cameo appearances on the show in the future. And thank you to everyone who submitted dialogue this week. You're all wonderful, and without your enthusiasm, pieces like this would not be possible. 
RFS also included Military March Music by Humanoid 9000, which played at the climax of Nina Nina's Daughter's speech. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at Gundam Podcast, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast, or by email at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, First Gundam had its episode count cut, and it's a masterpiece. So I say every Gundam show should be canceled for their own good. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. This week's Wrong Gundam Opinion comes from Haro Kid in the MSB Discord. Thanks, Haro Kid. And thank you for listening. At some point, I talked about shuttle launches. Did you? I think. Didn't I? Do you remember what? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's just our weird brains, Tom. I know. I think I used to be softer, Mm -hmm. but things have changed. (laughs) Maybe we should ask the people walking by on the street talking loudly how they would pronounce it. Fighting the Federation. Stop honking! (laughs) I have a lot of thoughts about that, but I don't know if now is the time. Is now the time? Well, hang on one second, because... (laughs) Is Hannah, what's her face? Anna Hannah. Good question. <laughs> Which ship is Anna Hannah on? <laughs> Remains to be seen. And maybe that would free Emery up to get with Caesar. Caesar, huh? Not Millie. I don't know. I think this episode implied that Millie might have a thing for Judo. She always called him Judo san. But she's so excited to see him again, and he is the only one of those kids she's excited to see. That's getting cut. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, which, when I first typed it up for this episode, I wanted to type newt types. <laughs> Scrap the whole show, new show about newt types. And it's hard to imagine a character more competent and professional than Astanaji. And while we're on the subject, how do you think he is going to react to Beecha being the captain now? I'm thinking not positively. Zabibi's eyes glimmered with a depth of understanding that belied his alien form.